Well, it wasn't so much the tune of this song that got stuck in your head. It was the lyrics. The lyrics were brilliant. They were ironic. Okay, so let's go back about 40-plus years, all right? 1972, and it's the famous song by Carly Simon called You're So Vain. Y'all remember this one? You're So Vain. Okay, it wasn't the tune. It was the lyrics. How did, how did the chorus go, right? You're so vain. You probably think this song is about you. You're so vain. I'll bet you think this song is about you, don't you? Don't you? And for, you know, the past 40 years, you know, her fans, ex-boyfriends, everybody's kind of wondering, like, okay, who, who did she write that song for? She doesn't name any names in the song, right? She never names a proper name. She just says, you, you're so vain, you're so vain. So um, it's kind of a mystery. We don't know who that was written about. Don't know who that was written for. There's many theories out there, but nonetheless, it remains uh, somewhat of a mystery. When you think about that song and who the intended audience is, there's been similar discussions over the years about, about the scriptures. Who are they really about? And who are the scriptures really written for? Now, we could spend 30 seconds, we could spend 30 minutes, we could spend 30 days talking about this, this one subject, this one question. Who are the scriptures written for? And there have been countless theories suggested to you and suggested to me. I'm, I'm not going to go through them all, but let me just, let's play with two for a couple minutes. One, maybe you've heard this or a variation of it. Um, the scriptures are like God's love letter to his people, right? Maybe you've heard that one, a variation of it. And would we say... I mean, yeah, when you read scriptures, there's definitely this sentiment of, of, of God's love for his people. It's there. But is that the main thing? Is that the primary focus? Uh, maybe you've heard this one. The scriptures are really just, you know, a, a collection of, of really good teachings, really good lessons, really good morals. Basically, it's for anyone who wants to learn how to live a moral life, right? It's for anybody. It's for everybody. That's who the scriptures are for. Maybe you've heard that. And on the front end, we would say, Absolutely right? There's some truth to that. You read through the Old Testament, you read through the, uh, the Ten Commandments, you read through the parables in the New Testament, yeah. How are we to respond to God's grace? With, with moral living, with a changed life. But is that the main thing? What Luke is going to suggest for us this morning is just this. The scriptures, you know, if they were a song, who are they written for and who are they written about? Luke's going to say they're primarily a biography Primarily, they are a song about Jesus, about him, and about his mission and what he's doing, right? This story is primarily about him. Now, a lot of us in this room would say, amen, myself included. But is that the way we read Scripture? Do we read Scripture as, as Christ being the main character? Because in, in this passage that we just read, Jesus quotes this Old Testament prophet, Isaiah. And what does he say? He's saying, 700 years ago, that prophet was actually pointing to me. He, 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 he explains and fulfills this prophecy autobiographically. He shows us this. Everything leading up to this point, everything going from here, everything that the Scriptures have been talking about have been about me and about my mission. Is that how we read Scripture? Again, maybe outwardly we would affirm and say, yes, it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. It's all about his, his mission. But inwardly, is that how you read? Man, we love to read the Scriptures autobiographically. We love to make ourselves the objects. We love to make ourselves the subjects 
of scriptures. How do we do this? Well, when it comes to the promises, what God's going to do to us, for us, in us, now, later, we love those passages. When we get to the ones about his wrath, his disappointment, his anger against sin, his discipline, those aren't on the refrigerator, are they? Not so much. That's one way we can read the scriptures autobiographically. There's, there's other ways, but that's not how we're supposed to read it. That's not how Jesus reads it. And so what Luke is going to tell us here at the front end, and again, this is, this is one of the first battles, this is one of the first campaigns in Jesus' reoccupation of this world. And there's a very key truth here. If we don't get this, um, the rest of the Gospels, the rest of the Scriptures really aren't going to make much sense to us. Old and New Testament, everything comes back to this one person. It's a biography of Jesus and his mission. That's what the Scriptures are primarily about. Okay, so three things I want us to look at this morning about this man and about his, his mission. First, something old. These are my points. Something old, something new, and then someone blue. Okay? Something old, something new, someone blue. Three points. First, uh, what's old here in this passage? Um, what's old? Uh, look back again at verses 18 and 19. Before we read that, some of us, we're in business, we're entrepreneurs, we've kind of bought into this like mission statement thing that's going around. It can be very helpful. Clearly defining what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. Verse 18 and 19 are basically Jesus is adopting Isaiah's words as his mission statement. Here is what Jesus is going to be all about. Here's where his energies are going to be focused. So with that in mind, verse 18 and 19, here's what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Let's dissect this. Um, when you look at the, uh, the verbs, like what God is going to be doing, what are, what are the verbs in this passage? He says three times he's going to proclaim. He's going to say things. He's going to declare things. He's going to uncover things. He's going to teach. All right? He's going to use his words. Okay? He doesn't stop there. The other verbs here are to recover sight, to set at liberty. Um, he's going to act. He's going to do things and good things. To those who, who are blind, they're going to get sight back. To those who are captive, he's going to liberate. And so kind of step back and we kind of look at what he's doing. He's, he's going to say things. He's going to do things. He's going to say what he's going to do, and he's going to do what he says. And there's going to be no gap in between. We're, we're not used to dealing with people like that. At the same time, we're not used to being people like that, right? We say a lot of things. And then we don't do them. What do we call that? We call that you know, our own hypocrisy. What Luke here is saying about Jesus and what Jesus is saying about himself is there's, there's no gap. There's no hypocrisy. What I say, I'll do. And what I do, I'll say. And the question is, is, is did God do this? Did God do this in the Old Testament? And we say, yes. What did he tell um, Israel through Moses? that I'm going to free you from the hand of Pharaoh. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to take you from his hand and give you a land of your own. That's what he said he was going to do. Did he do it? Yes, he did, and then some, right? The other question here is, that's, that's what God is going to be doing. Well, who is he going to be doing this for? Who are the objects of this prophecy? Who, who are going to receive these words, these actions? 
Notice the collection of, of people um, in verse 18. He says he's going to do this for the poor, for the captives, for the blind and the oppressed. There's a similarity between all of these, these people, these four people. Uh, aren't, aren't they all helpless? Aren't all of these people in a condition that they cannot get themselves out of? Who can give themselves sight if they are blind? Who can free themselves if they are captive? No, somebody else has to do that for you, right? God is going to be saying, he's going to be doing, and he's going to be doing it for those who cannot help themselves. And the good news is that this is nothing new. This is old news. This is something old. God has been doing this in the Old Testament, and Jesus in the New Testament, he's going to be doing the same thing. He's going to be about his father's business. But there is a twist, There is a twist, and here's the something new, okay? Look at Jesus' declaration in verse 21. Right after he reads from the prophet Isaiah, he makes a statement in verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, there's something odd. There's something funny about this comment, and maybe you've already picked up on it, but Here it is. Imagine you're in the synagogue with Jesus as he is declaring, saying that he's going to be doing all of these things. When you think about the prophet Isaiah and the context in which he gave this prophecy 700 years ago, where was Israel, right? They were captive to the Assyrians, right? This this foreign power. And so this prophecy literally was given to Isaiah, and Isaiah was to share this with Israel, that the Lord God declares that he is going to free you. You will no longer be captives, right? And did God do that? He did, absolutely. In the days of Isaiah, they were freed, and Assyria is no more. We cannot find Assyria. They are gone. That day of vengeance came, and the Lord freed him, and he rescued him. So why in the world is Jesus saying that today... Not 700 years ago. Why today is this prophecy being fulfilled? In your hearing, is Jesus mistaken? Does Jesus not know his Old Testament? Is Jesus going off the reservation? Why would he say something like that? It's it's for this reason. Sometimes with prophecies, Jesus will say, not, you know, hey, either or. As we like to say, it's it's a yes and. Yes, was this prophecy literally fulfilled? To Israel, were they, were, they, were they freed from captivity? Were they cut loose? Did Assyria feel this day of vengeance of the Lord? Absolutely. But that's not the end of the prophecy. Jesus says there's a bigger realization of this. This prophecy was not meant just literally for Israel 700 years ago. This prophecy is meant for the cosmos, in other words, I'm not here to, um, to, to, to free you again from, from other pharaohs, other Assyrians, other bad kings. I'm here for the real enemy, the enemy that is your flesh, the enemy that is death and the grave, the enemy that is the evil one that we often pray and ask for protection from. These are the churches. These are God's people's real enemies. And just as Israel was freed and liberated from Assyria, he's saying, I have come to liberate you from this powerful enemy, 
one that you have no control over, one you have no power over, the one you cannot save yourself from. And yeah, even in in some of Jesus' ministry, he's going to restore literal sight to people who are blind, right? He spits in the dirt, makes mud, and he wipes it on their eyes and they can see, but he's also here to enlighten our very souls. He's going to let you see yourself as you truly are, which is a rebel, a sinner, a self-centered, entitled person. We show up this way. And he's going to give you a glimpse of his glory. He's going to enlighten your soul. He's going to give you a glimpse of that. He's going to let you see this world as it truly is broken, but beautiful at times. And he's going to let you see what this world is going to become because he sits on the throne. Some are going to get literal sight, but all who believe in Jesus will be freed. All who believe in Jesus will have their eyes and their souls enlightened. They will receive spiritual sight. Maybe Isaiah knew this, maybe he didn't. Maybe Israel knew this, maybe not. But what you see here happening is this prophecy exploding, going cosmic, and being fulfilled in ways that maybe Israel had no clue that it was going to be fulfilled. Jesus' own words were, hey, I'm making all things new. Every little grain of sand, every little atom, all things are going to be made new. I'm reclaiming everything here. This is mine. Nothing left undone. The question is, well, how do we know this? How do we know that that, that's really what Jesus is trying to communicate in this passage? Something bigger than just, you know, a, a temporal fulfillment. Well, think about this. Did Jesus ever walk into a prison, up to a jail cell, and actually free a prisoner or a captive? Do we have anywhere in, in the New Testament Jesus doing that? To the best of my, my knowledge, no. Jesus never does that. Do we have stories or instances where Jesus approaches an individual and this individual is captive to a demon or this, this individual is enslaved to an addiction and in a moment, just by the word of his power, they're freed? Do we have any stories about that in the New Testament? Loads, right? This kingdom that he's bringing is not just physical, it's spiritual, We have a greater enemy than Pharaoh, a greater enemy than Assyria, a greater enemy than Rome. That's ourselves, our own heart. That's the evil one. That's death. And he's saying, I've come to make all things new. It's done. It's cosmic. The question we beg ourselves at this point is, okay, that's all great news. You know, churched or unchurched, if, if things are being made new and going back to the way they're supposed to be without pain, without suffering, without an evil one, without sin in our own heart, why are people so dadgum dialed up? Why in the world are they so mad at Jesus for declaring this? Why so angry? Why so blue? Well, let's consider this first. Notice where they start. Jesus makes this declaration in verse 21. Today, this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. How do they respond in verse 22? Look at it again with me. How do they respond? And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? The question is, is, is why were they marveling? Why were these gracious words to them? It's because they were thinking temporally. They were reading this prophecy, reading Jesus' words autobiographically. This prophecy that Jesus is talking about, this prophecy is about us. 
He's going to free us, right? We're the subject of this prophecy, right? Because where is the church? Where is Israel right now? Are they not under the thumb of Rome, paying taxes to Caesar? They're not free. It's not the worst case scenario, but it's certainly not the best case scenario. And things are about to get really, really difficult for the church, right? And so they do what we all do. We come to the scriptures and think, man, these are all about us. God's going to free us out from underneath Rome. He's going to take care of Caesar. And maybe it's just going to be this Jesus guy. He's going to do it. And this sentiment is all through the Gospels. This is the expectation. God for the Jews. But just so that they're not confused, Jesus says, not only are you not the subject of this prophecy, you're not the object. You're not even in the equation. Here goes the bombshell. Here's why they get dialed up. What does he say? Look back at verses 25, 26, and 27. Two Old Testament references. It says, But in truth I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Who is the who of this prophecy? Who is Jesus saying, hey, my efforts, my energies, where is my focus? Where am I going to point myself? Nothing new. To the same people that God had his focus and his attention on the Old Testament, the captives the blind, the lost. Who was this woman in the Old Testament, Zarephath, that was, that was healed? She had two strikes on her. She was a woman and she was a widow. She was helpless. She could not help herself. And who was Naaman, right? Naaman was a, was a leader in, in the army that was, uh, that was against Israel on a number of occasions, okay? So Jesus was saying, basically, I'm going back to the outcasts. I'm going to those who can't advocate for themselves. I'm going to your enemies. I'm not here to rescue you from underneath the thumb of Rome. I'm here to rescue Rome. I'm not here to bring you out from underneath Caesar. I'm here to save Caesars. It's not here in this text, but it's almost as if we're hearing Jesus say, have you forgotten yourself? Who was Abram before he was Abraham? Was he this moral, upright man? godly, looking for God? No, what do the scriptures tell us? He was from Ur of the Chaldeans. They worshiped the moon god, Nana, the Sumerian god, right? Spiritually, Abram was blind. Spiritually, Abram was dead. Spiritually, Abram was in the grave. Until what? Until God reached out, had mercy, and changed his heart. Jesus comes on the scene and says, hey, I'm not doing anything new. Same old business. Again, so, so why are they so upset? Why are they so dialed up? Is this just a miscommunication? No. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Familiarity breeds contempt, right? Familiarity breeds contempt, but so does unfulfilled entitlement. You want to see somebody get mad? You want to see somebody get dialed up full of wrath? You want to see somebody kill a messenger? Don't fulfill what they expect. Don't, don't give them what they feel entitled to. You want to see somebody get really mad, 
This is the story of us. This is our narrative. This is our biography. We love God's mercy. We love his kindnesses. We love his promises. And we love to hoard them. We love to keep them. And what God here is reminding us is that, hey, have you not forgotten that we've got a job to do? There's people who are still outside the church. There's still people who have not heard of this gospel, of this renewal. People who are blind, who can't see, who are captives. Jesus says, that's where I'm going. Almost as if to say to us, and are you coming? Are you still stuck in your entitlement? Unexpected as it is. Unfulfilled, excuse me, as it may be. Um, I want to close with two things, an encouraging thought this morning, but then also a sobering thought. First, an encouraging thought. Um, if, if, if the word is a sword and it pierces you and, and you're, you're mad, you're mad at me because I'm saying this, you're mad at God because, man, you nailed me. I'm an entitled insider. And there's very little in my life that kind of shows that I'm really on board with Jesus and what he's doing and his mission. It points to the opposite. I'm that's me. That's why when I go to the scriptures, I, I don't get much from them because I'm reading them autobiographically. That's why I'm so mad at God. And that's why I'm so mad at my enemies is because he's giving them what I think they don't deserve. He's giving them what I feel like I deserve. What is God going to do with the entitled insider? Um, I've printed for you in the bulletin the actual text from, from Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 2. Take a look at that for just, just a second. Jesus, when he's, he's in the synagogue and when he, when he unrolls the scroll, he gets to this part in Isaiah, he reads it, and Luke gives an account of it almost word for word, almost phrase for phrase. But something's left out in Luke chapter 4. Did you notice it? Something's left out. Look at Isaiah. Look at the second to last line. What does it say? It speaks about the day of vengeance of our God. Everything else is in Luke 4 but that. And is the takeaway here God has forgotten judgment? That God is, is, is not going to be a God of vengeance? No, that's, that's certainly not the case. What we learn in the rest of the scriptures is that God is a God of delayed judgment. It's coming. It's final. And Jesus is going to be on the front end of that. But why is it not here in this passage? Here's why I think it's been left out. As if to say to you and to me and to anyone who will hear, wrath's coming, but now you've been given the precious gift of time to consider your own heart, to admit before God, I have been an entitled insider and I have been mad at the wrong people for too long. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to change. God of David... Have mercy on me. Give me the true turn. Grant me repentance. Don't leave me here. Don't leave me as an entitled insider. Help me be about my father's business, just as Jesus was and is about his father's business. Help me. What is delayed judgment? It's an invitation for mercy and for grace. And the good news is, is that God has made provision for that. He will forgive us. That's what he's going to do with you if you repent and you ask for forgiveness.
But here's the sobering thought. And I've... To some degree, I was reluctant to, to make this admonition this morning because, and because of where we are and because of the climate. This admonition is often overused. Without being careful, it's, it's used as, as a hammer. It's used as a scare tactic. It's used to manipulate people into decisions. So I almost didn't do it, but you don't hear Brian or Tim or I say this a lot, um, partly for that reason. What I want to say this morning, because I, I believe it's in the passage. Um, and so, um, not for me, but, but from God himself. Here's a sobering thought. You know, when we read through the New Testament, you know, when we look at the disciples and how they traveled and where they went, where Jesus went, who he met with, there were often cities and people that they would visit multiple times to check up and see how the church is doing, how they've responded to this gospel message. Here on the front end of Luke, chapter 4, Jesus goes to where? His hometown, the people that know him best, the people that he knows best. And as best as we can tell, nowhere else in the New Testament does Jesus ever go back to Nazareth. He never goes back. And what does that tell us? It tells us this. Sometimes judgment is final. Sometimes in your wrath and self-entitlement, unfulfilled expectations. You're angry at God, and that means you're angry now at your enemies. You're not loving your enemies. You're angry with them, and you're keeping your distance. Sometimes his judgment's final. Sometimes the invitation to hear this, this, this great gospel, this gospel of mercy, that God doesn't want to be a cruel dictator. He wants to love you and rule you He wants to renew you from the inside out. He wants to offer you a free gift that he covered himself, paid for himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you will humble yourself and admit, I'm blind. I don't know up from down. I cannot see. And I've been a rebel to you for so long, pursuing my own desires, making myself my own God instead of you. Sometimes all we get is one opportunity to hear and believe. Sometimes his judgment is final and he leaves never to return. Every one of us is going to have a last time to believe, to hear and receive. And none of us, especially if you're here this morning, none of you can stand before God and say, I've never heard. I didn't know I had to humble myself. I didn't know that you were a good God. I didn't know that you were in the saving business that you're going to be merciful to those who are entitled and on the inside, and that you're going to give eyes and sight to the blind, and that you're going to rescue those who are captive to flesh and death and sin. I didn't know. Yes, you do. You have now heard. Today for you, the good news is that today can be the day of salvation. But here's a sobering thought. Tomorrow could be the day of judgment. Sometimes people only get one shot. And his judgment is final. He wants to be merciful to you if you'll humble yourself. That's his invitation. Let's pray together.